Where have you been? What? Were you guys on for a while? I, I've been checking and rechecking as I was going through my emails, and you weren't on until just a second ago. Oh, dang. I think my computer might have fallen asleep. We've been signed in for like 15 minutes, bro. Seriously? I got on right at 11.15. We got on, I bet, at like 11.12. We should have shot you a text. Dang it. Hey, uh, is your mic, you have the right mic? That's my question to you guys. Do I sound clear as a bell? You sound exactly the same as you always say. Yeah, honestly. Oh, I can't tell. Um, I'm going to check one more time. I checked before. Yeah. I will check it, dude. I'll check. You check. Yeah, hey, you know who has the right mic? This podcast. <laughs> I was trying to think about it. That was a good answer. <laughs> yep. Yep. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Hey, real quick, before we just dive in, did uh, Mets tell you our news? No, I don't think so. About our canonical retreats? Oh, that you guys you. are going out to Cali, right? Yeah, dude. I Cali. heard about that. Santa B. Just wanted to make sure you knew. Santa B. With the Baron B? Mm-hmm. Old Bobby B, or my boy. BB Baron, as we call him. As I just decided yeah, to call yeah, him. Yeah, you're right. He called just begging us to come out. Fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a dumb observation, but BB Baron has a similar ring to it as BB King, the famed blues musician. Because mm-hmm. Baron mm-hmm. isn't a Baron like a rich person. That's with one R. Like the beer Baron from Simpsons. Oh yeah, that is true. Yeah, for some reason I always associated like a Baron with. Um, well, there's also the Red some, Baron, some type of a wealthy pirate. Yeah, like or Baron von Trapp, isn't that a character from Sound of Music? Baron von Trapp. Oh yeah. I mean, like a duke who's... or a lord or something. But the Red Baron, who's he? That was a pilot, was he not? Yeah, British? Is that right? Oh, you're right. No, was it? I just remember learning about him on Scooby-Doo. No, you're, <laughs> they, thinking, you're thinking of Snoopy, right? It doesn't Snoopy? No, no, no. There's an episode with the Red Baron. On Scooby-Doo? On Scooby-Doo, yeah. Isn't that the old, like, Peanuts, the, um, like, Snoopy's nemesis is oh. the Red Baron? When Snoopy oh, flies his doghouse? Yeah. Well, I have no idea. I have, As my friend well, PJ would say, I have the world at my fingertips. Let's have a look. Red Baron. Mm-hmm. Manfred von Richthofen. Wikipedia. Oh my gosh. Is he a freaking... Also known as the a, Red Baron. A, was a fighter pilot with a the German? German Air Force during World War One. He considered German? the ace of aces of the war being officially credited with eight air combat victories. <laughs> Looks like a handsome devil. Did he... What happened to him? You want me to read the whole page? It's pretty long. <laughs> Originally no. a cavalryman, Richthofen transferred to the air service in 1915. Blah, 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 blah. There's been considerable discussion and debate regarding aspects of his career, especially the circumstances of his death. He remains one of the most widely known fighter pilots of all time and has been the subject of many books, films, and other media. Also a little known fact, Bishop Robert Barron is named after him. Huh, that's weird. Really? And probably the pizza. I think there's also a pizza. <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. It doesn't. It's impossible for Bishop Barron it, to be named after him. 
because it's his last name and it's spelled differently. Well, I don't know. Uh... Hey, uh, this is... <laughs> That's interesting that you just had the world at your fingertips there. Mm-hmm. I have pretty much given up, well, probably like 70% reduced my Googling. Oh. It's been very nice, actually. Is this your whole just, thing about like uh, fast from knowing things immediately and actually having to think about them? Yes. And mm-hmm. it's been continuing to be like a very positive experience. Is this where you just you just wait for the thing to come to you, or you oh, talk to other people? Or about I talk it? to other people about it, or whatnot. I've been huh. going to the library, like reading. Whoa! So, do you go to the old card <laughs> catalog and look up Red Baron? <laughs> I should, dude. I would love to do that. Do you think? Uh, do you think the cat, uh, the library at Mundelein still has a card catalog? Oh gosh, I'll ask. If ever there was a library that does, it would be ours. <laughs> Seriously, it will be if yeah. I would assume yes, and I would also assume that it will be the last card catalog in the world. Yeah. I well, I don't know. When I was in high school, well into high school, I still was using one. Did you guys ever use one at the library? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I can't really remember how they function exactly right now. It was but amazing. Uh, I do remember having technology way to. It was like an index of all knowledge in drawers of cards. You know, like yeah. how you look in the index of a book for a certain topic right i remember when dmac finished his book the spirit of the liturgy book uh he had to do the index and there were a couple like little easter eggs he left in there one was wonder woman um yes like there's one time he references wonder woman and he puts that he put that in the index with the page number but the whole idea of like having to put every topic into a bin of cards and put every book about that thing next to the topic and then on top mm. of that, there's the card catalog for index of authors, uh, index of titles. Yeah. So it was a, a massive amount of cards. Oh, yeah. And the public library that I used in my hometown, it was like right when you walked into the sort of they had the children's library off to the left and then to the right, the kind of the more adult and reference section. And hmm. it was just there, this massive countertop under which were drawers of cards. And I liked, I actually kind of liked it, kind of like what you were saying the the reward of not going right exactly to the thing you are looking for but actually have to pass over a bunch of stuff you weren't looking for and all these serendipitous kind of like i was thinking about this with movies because me and tom Byrne went on a little break last week for three days and uh wanted to watch some movies and we were looking through netflix and that's such a impoverished way of browsing through movies compared to going to blockbuster some somehow going to blockbuster and just walking, you know, along the edge where the new releases were, you just see a bunch of movies that you would never have remembered. And then the inside of the blockbuster was like the treasure trove of classics. And I don't know, somehow looking through a computer screen, just scrolling mindlessly past movie after movie that you have no interest in. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's something to be I'm said for the you, old man, school. This is, a, this is a legitimate positive thing going on in, in my life. I, can, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. I can't psychologize it, but I like it. And I remembered having to go to uh, when I was really into Rocky, which we've covered several times on this uh, podcast. <laughs> we've actually had several pretty much full-length podcasts <laughs> on that. your love for Rocky. Yeah. But continue. My mom got me the first one. I was probably 12. She would go to the movie store on Fridays and like just bring home movies she thought we would like. Um, and she brought Rocky one ho- home one day and I watched it by myself and then I remember going to Blockbuster on my bike with the movie to return the first one to get the second one and then 
the second one to get the third one, et cetera, et cetera. There's something kind of ritualistic about that. Um, whereas binge watching, just hitting next episode or next, whatever, next movie, something so unrewarding about that. Hey, well, real quick, we need to per- just prepare the listeners. There may not be an episode podcast-wise at the end of this month because Stranger Things is being released. Yep. <laughs> and so, yeah. Speaking of I binge watching. I everything that you said with that caveat. <laughs> yeah. Of, we have slated out about 30 hours when we're going to plow through that thing. Well, hopefully it's yeah. good. I, I have a feeling it might disappoint, but I, hope it, I hope it doesn't. But Oh, come on. Why? Because sequels, sequels almost always disappoint. Mm, yeah, but not uh, seasons and TV shows. I yeah. agree with movies. Um, well, but this is almost I think- like, I, I feel like these seasons and TV shows that get released all at once are like 10-hour movies. Don't you yeah, think? Yeah, they are. Um, yeah, absolutely. No, that's true. Yeah. So we're going to binge watch the first season mm-hmm. so that we can binge watch the second <laughs> season. That's the prep work that you're talking about, right? <laughs> that's the ritual. We have it all planned out. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. I know I'm going to regret this later. <laughs> Don't worry. That's like saying, oh, but I got a confession. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like, uh, I know this is bad for me. But I'll just tell the priest later, okay? I don't know. Well, back to what we were talking about before that little uh, thing and your shameless Rocky plug once again. <laughs> uh, Respect. <laughs> but um, I do feel like just allowing time to sit with that stuff and even just going to the library, I don't know, you just pick up on like these cool little like yeah, just stories or nuances or things that you don't with just like kind of the rapid fire Google search. Oh, right? absolutely. One thing we probably should talk about on the podcast if it's not this week is me and Mets are in right now a baller independent study on Edith Stein. Hmm. And it's with uh, Father Duran. Yeah. I mean, this is it's one of the coolest academic experiences I've ever yeah. had besides maybe having Oaks and Barron. This would be like up there with with that in my in my book. But anyway, um, so we're learning. We pretty much just took like three weeks just to get a full like in-depth biography of Edith Stein about all like the background stuff of like why her thought was so important, what was going on with philosophy at the time and then like her conversion, why she's a saint, blah, blah, blah. It was awesome. Yep. Um. But he was telling us that, well, one, when she was a student, she got addicted to coffee and cigarettes, which was awesome. Huh. My gal. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> but she fell in love with this guy named Engarden. And it turns out that Engarden ends up in Poland and is a professor of Carol Watiwa's. And even though they didn't get, got, they never got married because he rejected like her eventually. This guy named Engarden always had a picture of Edith Stein huh. on his desk. Yeah. And so, like, Carol Watiwa would have originally heard of Edith Stein, who he eventually canonized when he was Pope, as, like, this young student because his professor used to date her. That's like, I've never heard... The Isn't definition cool? of a small world. Yeah. That's crazy. So, but that also goes to like the influence 
that JP2 had or received through phenomenology would have somehow in some sense been connected through Edith Stein because one of the big things, and this is just within the academic world that they're starting to realize is Husserl, who was like the mad genius who kind of started to formulate phenomenology was just that a mad genius. And Edith Stein worked for a long time as his compiler and editor of a lot of the notes that he would take sporadically. So I can't remember exactly which work it is, but she, she never received credit for compiling that stuff and basically putting it out putting it in such a way that it could be printed and read and understood because he was just throwing out a bunch of ideas. He was just putting stuff on scrap paper and then, you know, kind of had that mad genius uh, syndrome where it was just a mess everywhere. And, and she was the one who compiled this thought, collected it, edited it and, and put it out. Um, So in a lot of ways, like she helped to propagate phenomenology um, especially within its very early time period, which was massively influential for JP2. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if this Ingarden guy necessarily read that stuff that would have been edited right. and right. influenced by Edith Stein, but certainly phenomenology in and of itself, like a, she's a, an integral part of it. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But anyway, moral of the story is it's been cool in this like limited experience we've had with Father Duran, who wrote his dissertation mostly on Edith Stein. And it's like, I just realized this more and more, like the biography that he gave us, like you could not find in a book. Like he has a mastery of this person and this content that like really only he could give us this class. So, I mean, it was legitimately felt like a gift to be in there. We just sit down. It's just us two and him. And we sit down for like an hour and 20 minutes once a week. And it's just like an onslaught of, of knowledge. But there's huh. just so much of that out there. It's similar. Let's make a, an analogy from old Iliopolis, my hometown. Sure. All right. Do it. All Do right. It. There's this guy. One of my heroes in life is a guy named Don Drabing, who I guarantee will never listen to this podcast. <laughs> but he is Shout like. Shout out Don. Mm-hmm. He's just like the man. He was real good friends with my grandpa. And he knows more about Iliopolis and Iliopolis sports history than wow. any human being alive. I guarantee it. So whenever you're around him, does he I see him remember around. that play that you biffed as catcher? Didn't you biff a play? Oh, you went there, man. <laughs> you went there. He might. I don't know. I don't know. He, he Remind me of what happened. You you hit a dinger or something and put you guys up, and then you let a pass ball go, and <laughs> it was right. your last last game ever or something. Yep. All right, this is great. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, this is awesome. Just yeah, blow through it, Rob. Yeah. Just blow through it. <laughs> yeah, moral of that story, uh, last baseball game ever played, senior year, uh, regionals, we're playing at Riverton. We're down four going into the last inning, and base is loaded. I get up. I double off the wall. Um, so we're down one, I'm on second base, two outs, guy singles me in, we're tied up, got all the momentum, uh, blah, 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 got a, you know, I think a sophomore throwing really good on the mound, I'm catcher, I had made like very few errors at catcher all season, and he strikes a kid out with a curveball and dirt, I block it, textbook, leadoff batter goes running down to second base, or first base, and I just freaking sail the first baseman. Oh, that's man. what it was. 
Yeah, so he's on first. He steals second on me. A couple ones later, they single men, walk away uh, with the victory. Haven't played baseball again. Um, so <laughs> so, so did uh, old Don Draber uh, remember that play? Was he there? Well, uh, no, it's more football. It's more, uh, okay. and we weren't a good enough team. He knows, like, the good teams. I don't know if mm-hmm. he might remember that. But anyway, he has all these super cool stories of, like, dude, like, decades and decades ago of like red grange the legendary illinois running back the galloping both, ghost the galloping ghost okay there was this guy from don't you test me dude i know this stuff hey hey he grew up in wheaton he's the wheaton ice man voted oh, yeah. espn number one college football player of all time red grange really yeah what shut up and let me finish my story <laughs> sorry dude <laughs> yeah. he just bragged about yeah. knowing yeah. all of this <laughs> dang it this story would have taken like 30 seconds. I'm feeling very and, boisterous you know, this morning. I feel very talk. free and easy. It's Columbus Golly. Day. It is Columbus Day. Thank you. Columbus Day. Long yeah. story short, there was this guy named Bob Williams who was a really good track runner for Leopolis. Hey, Bob Williams is the name of my uncle. I'm just kidding. He actually is. He actually is. But that was an interruption on purpose. So Bob Williams was this old guy in Iliopolis, like when Don was young. And Don told me one time, he was like, Bob Williams would always talk about he got second at some like state competition track meet and red grange beat him it was like the 200 hmm. yard dash hmm. or something like that and the only guy in the state that could have beat bob williams was red grange blah, yeah. blah blah well so don like always remember that as a little kid and then a few years ago now that all these like illinois high school records are online he researched it and sure enough the year that like bob williams would have been a senior in high school red grange won the state championship in like the two i don't know what it was but it was Mm -hmm. like a story that williams would always tell around town at like these coffee shops was true like he Mm -hmm. knew red grain from his old track running days um so it's just stuff like that not an important story Mm -hmm. but that story is going to be lost to the world well not now i mean it's national news on the podcast right but international even yeah i wouldn't call it news but yeah but it's it's on the record it's like that yeah yeah you know what I'm saying? Please, someone else talk. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Uh, that no, that's I, I think that's really true. That the stories. Well, I mean, there's this whole crisis right now about believability because you can just publish anything on the internet. When the internet first came out, of course, people were really worried about that. Well, you can just publish anything. People don't have to be vetted by these publishing houses and stuff like that. But I feel like it's come to a head now with the whole fake news and. Um, people just being able to people being very suspicious of what they read on the internet, uh, even mm-hmm. even ostensibly factual kind of journalism and stuff. People don't take it as read that that stuff is necessarily true or the whole truth. Whereas prior to the internet, most of it, most of human knowledge or a lot of it was hearsay. Like you would never have been able to check the veracity of that guy's story, Bob Williams's story, against any record. You know. You just right. know the guy and know he mm-hmm. wouldn't lie. And uh, that's a, that's how you, it's kind of like revelation. How you know it's true because you believe the person telling you, you know? Yeah. And with the internet, it's a very, very anonymous um, way to disseminate information. You have no idea where it's coming from or who's got what agenda. You know, if somebody comes to you and tells you they got a fish the size of Houston, it's like, well... You just, you know, you're a liar and you exaggerate. So I don't believe you. But, you know, 
like my friend's dad never exaggerates fishing. And we were talking about places to fish this summer, uh, this next summer for our fishing trip. And he's like, my dad went to this place in uh, Idaho that's like above where we normally fish. And he says he was just killing them all day. Uh, it was like this tiny little river that no one would have thought to fish and that he was catching 50 fish a day and he never exaggerates you know mm-hmm. so the source of the information was was the you know if if i had said i caught 50 fish i don't exaggerate too much but i'm not as trustworthy as this guy who's never told a lie to impress people about how good of a fisherman he is you know mm-hmm. um so yeah there's something to be said for information being shared more personally don't know what that has to do with blockbuster but well but but I think it, it gets to the point, and, and this is part of the beauty of the class that I've enjoyed so much with the with Father Duran and Edith Stein is this is a guy who knows a gal. He knows Edith Stein. Mm, yeah. And not only does he know her story, but like he's in her mind. Or better, she's in his mind. And so when he talks about her, I mean, it's, it's seriously like telling the story of an old friend. Right. Um, he just kind of, he went right through her life. I mean, it was absolutely beautiful. And talked about how different experiences, how she thought about them, um, how they affected her, um, yeah, how she was thinking about stuff, and um, which I guess she had she had written a couple of books, specifically the, um, you know, what was a conundrum for her was being a Jewish Christian living in Germany during World War II, like mm-hmm. the complexity of all of that, and what that looked like in terms of how she identified herself and um, how she saw herself, and so you really get like I can just come into that class and put every single filter down that says like, Hey, question this or um, like is this 100% true. Like everything that father Duran is saying is going straight into my brain. as this is 100% factual mm. about Yiddish Stein, yeah. which is a great gift to be able to do because oftentimes, like you said, because of the news and because of the people who tell us facts and tell us stories, you're honest, you're always questioning what is the authority that this person has to make this statement hmm. or why should I trust them? Why should I believe them? I think that's part of the beauty of the classes. There's total freedom that's there. You go in and it's just like uh, direct contact with, yeah. with her, with phenomenology and with a time that I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so in a real sense, that class is a doorway to, um, yeah, like an era and a mind that I would never be able to contact without them. Mm-hmm. I would never be able to have any contact with that. So it's a super gift because yeah. he knows her. Super gift. I remember the first person I knew like that. Something that really impressed me as a young person was people who could speak with authority. Um, mm-hmm. And Baron, who was coming to do masses on the weekend at my parish, when I was a teenager was like the first person that I thought when that dude talks, I listen because he knows things that I don't know. And I oh, can yeah. learn from him. And uh, I was also kind of like the first awakenings to like the seriousness of Catholicism. It wasn't just this kind of frilly uh, religion of niceness, but he, he really brought it home that this is serious business and, um, you know, has some truth to it that needs to be digested. And so I kind of, I may have said, said this before, something to this effect, but I, I leaned on that. Like the people that you lean on, that even if you don't have all the answers, you know somebody does out there. Um, and that, that lends 
you confidence when your faith is challenged or when your belief is challenged. Uh, and I remember one specific incident. I would think of junior in high school. And we were talking about, I think it was Henry David Thoreau, some essay called Fate. And um, a couple of the kids in the class were really brainy. Um, and, you know, there's like the debate kind of kids that were just good at talking with fake authority. And that always bugged the crap out of me. How you could, you know, like just make a statement and not back it up and just say it as if it's a, as if it were a fact. And therefore this or, you know, to basically to like punctuate a point. And this one kid who I didn't like, uh, I don't think anybody really liked. I feel bad for him now. But at the time, you're in high school. And he was just uh, this cocky kid. Uh, and he made some statement about Thomas Aquinas. And it was kind of to, as if to brush off him and therefore Catholicism in general as just sort of nonsense. He said, Thomas Aquinas, who, by the way, was a notorious playboy, said blah, 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 or something like that. Um, and I was like, A, at, at the time, I'm like 16, I, A, I had the only familiarity with Thomas Aquinas I had was that Baron would often say that name <laughs> in his homilies. I had no idea who he was. I never read a word of what he wrote. I didn't even know, like, he was a priest or a Dominican or anything like that. Um, but I, I, you just have this gut feeling that like, that's not true, but I can't just raise my hand and be like, no, that's not true. I know that because, you know, people can just say things with no mm -hmm. backing whatsoever. And, and words have power, man, that would plant seeds into like everybody else has pro had probably never heard of Thomas Aquinas before in that class. Uh, mm -hmm. unless they were at mass with me on Sunday, which I don't think they were. So the only thing that they would have heard about him was that he was a notorious playboy, you know, which is a bald faced lie, but would paint, <laughs> it would paint your perception of anytime anybody referenced him or quoted him as an authority. You know, you get what I'm saying? So my feeling in that mm -hmm. class was, boy, if Baron was here, father Baron was here, he would totally just school these kids, you know? He would. It was, it was like yeah. often, often, and especially English classes where conversations that were more deep would come up and people would say things that I knew intuitively were wrong, but I couldn't argue with them. I would lean on that like in my head. Well, Baron would completely crush these guys. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm so grateful I had him in my to live in my mind. But like what you're saying about Duran, I think is similar where you might not be able to do exactly what he's doing, which is teach somebody everything about Edith Stein, but he knows those things. And that's a comfort. Father Hennessy about the, the, the patristics, like talking sure. about Ignatius of Antioch or, or Polycarp or something like that. The way he talks about those guys, I, I talked to his brother, Father John Hennessy once, who was pastor at Libertyville. And uh, I was talking about Father Larry Hennessy and, and how I was taking a class at the time, I think it was an HCT class. And he's like, yeah, he, he talks about those people like he's their friends, you know, they're his mm -hmm. friends. And I thought that was a good way of saying it. Father Schoenstein, the way he talks about the Bible, he talks about the prophets like they're his friends. Um, you know, the, like the, a deep familiarity with someone's thought. It's kind of amazing that you can be connected to somebody dead for thousands of years. 
or in either Stein's case, like a hundred years or less. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Uh, no, that authority, like speaking with authority. Um, yeah. I don't know how you like get there necessarily. I mean, I've had, I think glimpses of it. Well, even fairly recently, I'm going to leave this like very, uh, vague just to like respect the person but there was like a critique of something in a homily that i gave and it was i mean it, honestly the conversation went great i was super thankful that this person like came to me it was very direct it was not like passive aggressive at all but this person was like incorrect of their understanding at least my understanding from um i mean it wasn't even about the Bible is just like about the language being used and kind of heard a word that I said and just like shut down on like the whole main point. And it was like, you can't say that in a homily because mm-hmm. it's going to lead all these people astray, like yeah. blah, blah, blah. And so the conversation mm-hmm. went great. And I tried to like explain to this person of like what I was trying to say. And also like where I really felt like the misconception was which is like not an understanding of the term that was used so i did i counted it as like a learning experience to me to try to be clearer but i kind of held my ground with the person of like no i i don't like i actually don't like agree with what you're saying and like Mm. think that's actually a really important point because a lot of catholics believe what you're saying and that's not right. right like that's not what we believe as catholics and so it didn't it ended like very respectfully but not like like feel good at all, you know, like a love, not just agreeable for being agreeable. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I, and I, you know, I, I like really kind of stuck with me just a couple of days, but you know, cause I kind of felt bad. I think I made the person feel like a little bit bad. I don't know. Um, but I do think it went well, but it was just like, I can't like, I have to hold to that, you know, like, um, Mm -hmm. that's a really like kind of important tenet of, our faith and like that's what you're saying is not right yeah um and as well intentioned and as like full of faith as it is it's beautiful in a way but like it's not that's not correct um and so and i felt like i did it in a way that wasn't a jerk either you know Um, yeah 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 Mm -hmm. um i hope so anyway i'm sure you all like we've all run into that type of uh, well, it takes a kind of maturity okay. and confidence in what you believe and know to be right. true um that one of the ways i kind of gauged it in my own learning was like there was a time a long time where just reading and understanding a thing was as much as i could do you know um sure whether that was philosophy history theology or whatever um but the step of like reading something and understanding what the author's trying to say and at the same time having the critical distance to like say I don't agree with that but give yourself the freedom to actually like entertain the thought you know sure so like in my senior year of high school I took a great books class that was my English class and we read Freud and Marx and um, Bertrand Russell and a lot of these famous atheists and that was the first time we, we would have one day that was called the I day, which I think was uh, inquiry or something. And then the other day was E day evaluation. So there'd be just a discussion question. A student would 
formulate one question to base the whole like 40 minute discussion on. Um, and the I days were all like, what does the author mean basically, um, by this term or like some central idea that they were trying to get across and you, you couldn't evaluate, you weren't allowed to critique, to support or, or criticize something that the author was saying. You just had to fight to understand what he meant or she meant, you know? And then the next day, which was everybody's favorite, was to like argue uh, whether or not that's true. But that was good training for me to to be like, I can listen to an idea that I don't necessarily believe in. Or what's even more difficult is somebody who mostly uh, goes with what you hold to be true. Uh, because we're all, our beliefs are also always changing, but based on our experience, you know, not our fundamental beliefs and axioms, but you know, basic assumptions we have about life or people are, con- they should be constantly changing. Even God, you know, like you, you go through conversion all the time. Um, you're not right about everything, but at the same time, like it, it does no good to just, there's some people like in college, they would just read a book and then that was what they believed, you know? And then the next oh, yeah. book they'd read that. And if it, it feels so good to understand kind of a complicated way of, uh, thinking or, or especially like globalizing, universalizing principles, like Marx would say, everything is just economics or Freud is saying everything is just sex, you know, and then that's easy. Like it's the reductio. You just reduce all knowledge and experience to this one idea. And you're like, yeah, that's that really jives with what I think, you know, or karma. That's one. you know, we studied in middle school, Buddhism, and the teacher explained what karma was. And every kid that because it's so easy to understand, it almost be like understanding it is believing it you know um do you get what i'm saying yeah or even the protestant reformation i mean it was the same the same way Mm -hmm. at a time where people there was lots of complexity there was lots of corruption and the reformers came out with a very clear idea a very clear system that um i mean at least the way it's been presented to us was it's a reductio you -hmm. know it's seeing everything through sola fide um yeah but it it's actually something, um, well, you and I talked about when I went down for your parish, uh, for seminary appeal mm. quite a bit is this realization just throughout my time in seminary. And I mean, probably before that as well, but how often <clears throat> I talk and yeah, I'm sure it's, it's very clear on the podcast as well, but from b- my beginning point is my own experience, which of course makes sense. And that's a fine starting place. That's, that's how I, um, you know, that's how I experience life is through my own experience, obviously my own sense experience. Um, but how oftentimes like I can generalize my own experience to the, to the harm of a bigger idea. Um, so that I just take, you know, my, my one particular experience of a certain situation or a certain experience, hmm. um, and just, and just kind of generalize it and make bigger claims about ideas that are not necessarily true. They don't always correlate with my own experience. Hmm. Um, and I guess it's it's helped me to realize, and this is actually kind of come through listening to a couple of political commentators that will remain nameless um, for the neutrality of the show here. Um, but I, ideas are very important, and how in my own thought processes, how you know, quote unquote, ad hominem attacks can 
ad hominem fallacies can oftentimes muddle my own ideas hmm. of how I actually think about stuff. Right. And that's of my own experience where like, oh, this is how I experienced it. Therefore, it must be true mm-hmm. or how I perceive other people. Um, it's it's very challenging for me to just take an idea qua an idea hmm. and remove myself or a person from the source of any the type idea. of that right yeah any type of that conversation which sort of gets to the authority thing as well but it also you know i i it points to like different critical thinking abilities and um what you're talking about as well but that's something that i've actually been trying to work really hard at hmm. is yeah and i don't even know what's the right way to do it but um like just look at look at the idea as such yeah um not take it personally um, and to not allow how I think about the idea to be muddled by the source of it, hmm. even though like that's that's a part of it, you know, that's yeah. that's a part of our consideration of saying, is this true or is this not? Do I believe this person or do I not? Oh, and it totally uh, happens in the church where like, you know, people will have their voices that they listen to and their voices that they refuse to listen to, you know, on both on both sides of issues, you know, and if one person comes out saying something that could easily have come out of the mouth of the other person that you've already written off. Um, you're more convinced by it than if that person saying the same idea, but being the person you tend to ignore because of this or that or the other reason, like you, to your point, what I'm hearing you say is that you, it, for most, if not all, the source of the idea is just as important, if not more important than the idea itself. Right. I, I, right. Yeah. I mean, it can, I don't know about more important, but it can shape and change the idea in such a way that it, it could distort it entirely. But mm-hmm. where's the, like the line, and this is a legitimate question, like where's the line there of, I guess I kind of thought of it in like a very basic way of, like I've told people before and still like think this is like good advice of, um, man, if you're, if you're first like just starting like to take your faith seriously or had some type of conversion, like and you want to start reading, like pay attention to the publisher who published that book that you're reading. And you only know, read um, only read tan books, for instance. Or Ignatius. <laughs> or yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, but uh but exactly to where like where then do you start to because you can't do that forever mm-hmm. then. I, I mean you have to start in a sense like really thinking for yourself on some of this yeah stuff in, uh, in a way that gets back to the card catalog i don't mean to interrupt you again but <clears throat> like that's okay um i felt like especially after ordination when i now your your reading is really up to you you know it's you're right. responsible for it and uh you're free to do the reading that you want to do um I, I just found like it, it's been much more of a natural kind of frog leap from lily pad to lily pad like I finish a book, a novel or theological something or other. Um, and the next book or thing that I read sort of naturally presents itself. You know, not always. Sometimes there's like, all right, what do I read next? Mm-hmm. But usually from reading an idea, it leads me by my own interest and curiosity um, to the next thing. Do you get what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. that... I do feel more free from the, I, I'd be bored to just say like, I'm just going to read all of this one author. I'm, I'm just going to read the whole Ignatius corpus. You know, I'm just going to 
take that as a, as a seal of like an imprimatur that I should read this and, and believe it. Um, I mean, not, not that everything that Ignatius puts out, I don't believe, but, um, you get what I'm saying? Like that the, there's a certain, that's the, that's the nature of the human mind, I think, and, and how a person becomes someone who has something to say is that you went down your particular path of knowledge through like, how did Bishop Barron get to be Bishop Barron? You know, he didn't take a Bishop Barron course. You know, he, he read, he was uh, enchanted by Thomas Aquinas as a teenager. And then that led him down a road through seminary and, and everything that he's done since then. But his master idea is basically the non-competitive nature of God. Right. You know, and he kind of came to that on his own and, and Oaks, uh, references as as a resolution to one of his problems uh, of grace in that six controversies book the one that he put mm. out after he died mm-hmm. um and that's when it really occurred to me like yeah that is baron's master idea you take his doctrine of god course and almost everything leads back to that that you are more free the more you let god uh sort of rule your life the, that great paradox of the fact that the more you and god become one it's like the burning bush you you are not consumed by that but rather lit on fire to become who you truly are Irenaeus, Irenaeus I think Baron wrote a new book on Irenaeus but that whole idea of the glory of God as a human being fully alive um, he came to that idea through his own reading of like everything every magazine every book and and stuff like that um, I don't know we should have him on and ask him whether that's accurate or not but I a historian, yeah, but, how do historians get to be, you know, historians of the Civil War versus, you know, like Dr. Hilliard's a historian of the Venerable Bede, you know, you you fall in love with a certain train of thought and it leads you to be the kind of person that has something to say on that topic. You know what I mean? There's no canon necessarily like you once you read all these books, you will be an educated person and just regurgitate these things. Um, you get what I'm saying? Right, because there, <clears throat> the the beauty of that process, how Baron became Baron, was not by taking a Baron class, but by, um, like turning these these ideas into, into his own idea, which is why he can speak with authority, because he's not just regurgitating facts, like this is, he's turned this over so many times in his head, um, that it's it's shaped it's shaped. The, t- the type of person that he is it shaped how his mind works and you know even we were even talking on the way down to the u of i game mm-hmm. um just about like how incredibly providential it was that baron received the education that he did that baron received the ideas that he did through um you know the school of thought that he went to <laughs> um and so yeah the source of your information has a massive impact on it but um yeah i, I guess that's just looking at the point of authority, you know, and I can't help but think of, um, you know, the awesome scriptures with Christ where it, it talks about how he did speak with authority and like everyone's blown away and amazed. And oftentimes when I imagine that I picture him, you know, you kind of think of like some, not a raving lunatic like Hitler, but just someone up there like very passionately fired up and, um, and, and getting very emotional about it. But, you know, oftentimes looking to Bishop Barron when he speaks with authority, he's a passionate preacher, but the guy can speak with authority in a level tone yeah. and like a cool rhythm of speaking. Right. Um, and so like, what did it look like for Christ to speak with authority? Um, 
Yeah, I, I. Yeah, I imagine the people on the Mount of Beatitudes all in hushed silence as he speaks with just a normal speaking voice, not like screaming. I, like I've noticed in myself. Right. I don't know about you guys, but when I'm less sure of the truth of what I'm saying, I tend to get more animated. <laughs> but if I really believe oh, yeah. it, you know, I just just say it because you know it's the truth. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's the case with me. <laughs> <laughs> that's not the case with me. Um. But it is interesting to look at also the publishers. Uh, I had actually heard Dr. Hilliard say that before, hmm. um, where he would actually read certain books because they were published by yeah, certain publishers. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, mm-hmm. But it does make me think of like how people receive news, mm-hmm. you know, is, you know, you could look at certain publishers as being t- certain types of news providers. I know people who will, and myself included, I will not pay attention to any news that comes out of specific news channels sure mm. or if i do read it it's so heavily influenced by oh i know exactly where this is coming from mm-hmm. that like i'm just gonna basically not pay attention to 80 to 90 percent of this article and i'm looking for like one or two things here's the thing uh, about the news read anything in like your average periodical or, or news website about the church anything that you know something about like the inner workings of and read how they describe it or summarize things like like the priesthood or something like that and you will see how flawed and uh cursory and sort of glossed over many of the important details of the thing that you know about a lot about are that now transcribe that or transpose it to any other topic you don't know about that you're reading about in the news you get what i'm saying like Journalists are experts in journalism, not in the church or in whatever other topic they happen to be reporting on that day. So you have to take it with a grain of salt, you know? That's the way I see it. Oh, 100%. That that hits much closer to home than you would ever realize right now. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, it does also make me think of a point that Barron has made, and I... I don't think I really ever understood the full grasp of it, but he did a video not too long ago, um, I probably within the last two years, year maybe, of just what a significant problem it is that I think he said 50% of incoming Harvard students are avowed atheists. And the way that he talks about the importance of um, like having really good teachers and when your education system is... Uh, being so heavily influenced by certain trains of thought, certain ideas. Uh, like, obviously, that's at a very high level. We don't always see it on the day-to-day, but um, that affects our society. That that affects mm-hmm. um, our education system. And, um, yeah. Yeah, what I see, like, in my The parish, transmission of ideas is important. Honestly, in my parish, I can't think of a single real atheist that I've met. Honestly, um, met a lot of people who don't practice their faith or don't know mm-hmm. much about what they believe about God. But I'm serious. I don't think I've met a single person. Now, obviously, there's it's selected for who's coming to me or who I meet. But even people I meet in bars or in, in restaurants or stores and stuff like that, everybody acknowledges God and wants to talk to you about how they pray or, or, or whatever. Um but yeah, hearing a stat like that, that 50% of incoming freshmen going to Harvard are atheists. And that was what I experienced in high school and, and college especially was, you know, people flirting with that idea or being sure of it. 
that there is no God and sort of operating that way. But it doesn't seem to trickle down. The idea doesn't seem to trickle down, but the praxis does. You know, living as if God does not exist, that does trickle down to pretty much every day, everyone, you know. But not not very many people go to Harvard, you know what I mean? Um, but there's something to that, the fact that the elite of the elite uh, don't think there's a God, even though pretty much everybody does <laughs> throughout history. I mean, especially if you take the the democracy of every historical person that's ever lived, like atheism is a pretty new idea. But I, I guess I'm surprised at how little that affects my day-to-day life as a priest. I'm not having to argue with atheists. You know what I'm saying? But I do see the effects of godlessness in in society, whether it's the consumerism and, you know, everything's got to be open on Sunday and like this sort of f- frantic pursuit of, of things that aren't God uh, at the expense of even having the opportunity to pursue God. I see that everywhere, but that that's sort of architected at a high level that most people, myself included, don't really engage on a daily basis. You know, I'm not talking to Harvard kids uh, or Harvard graduates who are now running companies and governments and influencing public policy and stuff like that. It's just, it's interesting, which is why I think Barron does what he does. You know, tries to meet those people. He just was just at Facebook a couple of weeks ago, giving a talk and, He's going to Google, I think, to give a talk. And like these people who really kind of run the world, who by and large don't believe in God and don't have any time for us. Like he, by the grace of God, has an audience with those people because of who he is and the authority with which he speaks. You know what I'm saying? That's incredible. How is he? That's amazing that he's getting those gigs out there. I know. Mm-hmm. Dang. Yeah. We're <laughs> we were here in the golden days, people. <laughs> That's like another deep feeling that I've had is just so grateful to have received the education that I received. And yeah. and bringing it back to this Edith Stein class, it's like this is really just like the cherry on top. And I'm I'm so glad that even before I could leave, that I could have an academic experience like this, because uh, it's just yeah, it, it will end off my time at Mundelein of just having a a sense that I received a real deal education up mm-hmm. here that yeah. like I do have confidence in and I would go to bat for um yeah if people if people did think differently or challenge it mm-hmm. um I would feel confident enough to stand my ground no it's definitely a capstone uh like the experience we've talked about this yeah. but um because we I mean it's also been not to uh like make us sound smarter than um, we are by any means, but well, these conversations like, are edited to make us sound smarter. Well, that's true. So that's fair. No, you can't. Yeah. Please do. <laughs> um, but with Duran, I mean, on like it's he's just done such a good job of that class because it's been like he is the obviously the driving force behind it, and really it does feel like he's introducing us to his very good friend. But it's very fast paced. Like it's the most tiring hour and twenty minutes that I've experienced in like the academia that we've experienced at Mundelein. Um, so it's just trying to like rack your brain to put this stuff together from philosophy and theology and all this stuff. And uh, like we've talked about it, just realizing we would, we're able to get something out of this class and like really poke and prod at things that he is saying. Um, that's just such a gift in and of it, in and of itself that like 
again, we've totally been given. Um, I don't know. It's just, it's just a cool experience um, of that. Uh, you guys are getting things- like the Oxford treatment up there. How many guys are in that independent study? Just us. Yeah, it's just yeah, us that's and totally The Oxford method is just like you go to a Don who knows something about a topic and you just sit at his feet and listen, you know, and have – it's not like the uh, Baron called the Schleiermachian method of teaching, which is you've got your hair doctor up at a pulpit speaking to a lecture hall full of anywhere from 50 to 1,000 people and reading a scriptum and you take notes, you take a test, write a paper, and that's it. That's how you learn. That's how most of us learned from the time we were – in kindergarten right that method of like sitting around and and really hashing out an idea that's such a rare opportunity that you have a person of that wealth of knowledge for an hour and 20 minutes just as like the privilege of two men you know yeah it feels like an apprenticeship exactly like teach me your craft Mm -hmm. what teach me how to think this way yeah it's 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 very very special. It honestly it, it reminds me of just the kind of the mental exhaustion. I haven't felt it quite as much as when I went down and learned Spanish. Mm-hmm. I mean, I would come back at the end of the day and my brain would be zapped. Mm-hmm. And it, I not quite to that extent, but I I mean I would do like six or eight hours of Spanish a day, you know. But that's the most mentally yeah. tiring thing you can do: learn a language. Oh my goodness, yeah. But you can really feel. <clears throat> you can feel your mind being uh, stretched and, yeah. and being challenged, and like you, yeah. I mean, if you came to that class and you weren't paying attention, it would just be a huge waste of effort. Or if you didn't time. do the reading, yeah. <laughs> imagine if yeah. you didn't do the reading and there's only two guys in there. <laughs> yeah, the we've question, actually confronted yeah. that reality. Yeah, no, yeah, we really <laughs> talked about that. We actually have set a time amongst ourselves to meet in the week to keep us accountable to do the reading, or else it probably wasn't going to happen. Yeah. But I mean, it's also like. Yeah, I mean, if you don't pay attention for like three minutes in that class, you're just sunk. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, it's so much fun. Like I've never, I've never experienced anything, anything like it. It's yeah. so good. Yeah, I won't lie. There were some classes in seminary that were not like that. I remember me and Adam Wilzak sat next to each other a lot in, in classes, and uh, we would play hangman <laughs> on. So one of us would draw a hangman on their own paper with the blanks and then the other one would write their guesses on their paper and you just glance at the other guy's sheet and either draw a part of the guy's body or fill it in or you'd write the category at the top like movie or book or something yeah not proud of that but sometimes you don't don't have to to hang on by your fingernails for every thought that a teacher is telling you yeah, I don't relate to that at all. I pay attention every second of Take every class. Curious. There was yeah. one guy in seminary. I don't know if he ended up becoming a priest because I think he left and went to another place. But he was in pre-theology and he recorded every class. He took First of all, he took furious notes in every class, like wrote down every word the guy was saying and would tape record it. And then I learned from someone else, he'd go back to his room and transcribe the audio of everything he said. And there were some, <sighs> there were some classes where that was not necessary at all. Um, uh, all of them yeah, yeah. <laughs> every single class that's unnecessary right uh, but he was just determined to like learn every single word that the professor had said and it, it was like he was so stressed out still I mean even after having done all that preparation and paying attention he was always stressed but 
You guys went to the U of I game? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Who'd they play? Nebraska. Oh. We got beat. Yeah. Warren Huskers. It was the Friday night. Mets was heading down to uh, Atlanta. Well, Knoxville first. Heading down to Knoxville. That's Him right. and Justin Ryan were doing a little football pilgrimage. And so we caught the Friday night and I Huskers nice. game. You know. I mean, the score really didn't reflect who was the better team, right? Obviously. In my opinion, yeah. Um, just you know, a few plays here and there go the yeah, other way. They were way, undefeated in non-conference play, so there you go. You see, yeah. Very good point. Uh huh. That's their first statement. conference game was against Nebraska. Yeah, and that's actually what you said is actually not true. That's fake news. But oh. anyway, <laughs> who, yeah. who beat them? Uh, South Florida. Yep. Oh, they lost. Hey, that's them. a good team, though. That is a good team. They're that is a good team. team. Mm-hmm. That was in yeah. Champagne, so then. Part of the part of the break for me was getting Justin Ryan, a Seattleite and fellow dog and seminarian Broski up here. Mm-hmm. Um, what I like to call the old uh, language immersion program to the south. <laughs> so we we brought him to a University of Tennessee versus University of Georgia Go Dogs football game, and it was a vehicle. It was. We destroyed them. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Slaughtered them. Yes, it was. It, which was a lot of fun for me, um, but we beat them so bad. It was like, right, I mean, Nayland Stadium is one of the biggest stadiums in the country and has the one of the largest gatherings of rednecks and, <laughs> I mean, at least weekly history in Tennessee. Uh, so they, yeah, we just beat them so bad. Everyone left the game very disheartened. They didn't have much to cheer about, which is disappointing. But This was the volunteers I, they played, Tennessee? Yeah. That's that's the University of Tennessee Volunteers, which is my mom graduated from there. I grew up a big UT fan, so I I actually do quite like them still. But um, it's the Bulldogs, baby. So we we he did a Civil War tour down south. Though oh, cool. Justin did. We stayed up in the cabin for a little bit, and yeah, it was a good break though. It was it was really good to be home and see the family a little bit. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, good talk. What the heck did we even talk about today? Oh, I don't know. Hopefully the sound is usable. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.